You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning, my name is Erin Wright, and I'm a member of the McLean Community Group. Today we'll be reading from Ruth chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Good morning. Come on now. Am I good? Is that good? All right. Good morning. Um, my name's Tanner House. I'm the uh, lead pastor here at Redeemer Church. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, if you're a guest, thank you so much for being here. Under your chair, there's a connect card. You can take a minute, fill that out, and we would love an opportunity to connect with you, to serve you, to see how we could get you plugged into the life of the body. Um, and if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Chad will bring you one. Um, and if you're on your phone, we are in the ESV. And so today is the last day of our walk through Ruth. We've, uh, we've reached the, uh, the end of our our time in the the text today, the narrator is going to tie up some loose ends and wrap up some major themes that have been unfolding throughout our walk through Ruth. So before we jump in, I I just want to give you some information about me. I don't know if you can tell or not, I'm a mega nerd. Um, I love to read books, and I love to read books about history specifically. I love just studying history. I would stay in school my entire life Uh, to learn all the things if school were not so expensive. But in academia, there is is this pervasive narrative that gets gets pushed on students of history. Um, And the narrative is that history really isn't going anywhere at all. It's just a series of random and unfortunate events that happen that consequentially will shape the world culturally and politically. But according to academics, these things just seem to happen. But as believers, we know that's just not the case. It isn't the case for us personally, and it isn't the case throughout the history of the world. What the Bible shows us, and what we certainly have seen in the book of Ruth, is that While history does have some deplorable moments, none of these things have caught God by surprise. And God is working uh, working to bring about the consummation where God reigns eternally forever and ever. There is coming a day where Christ will return and establish a new heaven and a new earth. And he will sit on his throne and he will dwell with his people forever. And so we await eagerly for that day. And the book of Ruth is a story 
of real people in a real time and in a real place. And it serves for us both now and throughout history as a reminder of a God who is pleased to work. A God who is pleased to work in providence and in sovereignty on behalf of his people. And he is working for his good and his pleasing will for our lives and for his glory. So let's pray and let's just dive into this text together. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, show us, our, show us our need for you. Lord, I ask that you would encourage the faint-hearted in here this morning. Lord, that you would help the weak and wounded among us. Lord, I ask that by your grace and by your mercy, you would draw us to repentance. Lord, may your kindness lead us to faith and dependency. Church, I'd ask if you're willing that you'd pray for yourself. That the Lord would bring conviction where conviction is needed. And that the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed. And if you're struggling, man, I just ask that you'd pray that the Lord would help you to not waste these moments. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you're new, um, let me see if I can summarize the book of Ruth in a tweet. Um, Ruth is a widow from a pagan nation. The nation's called Moab. Um, her and her mother-in-law, Naomi, um, Naomi's also a widow, by the way, they return from the land of Moab after a famine. God has lifted the famine in Bethlehem. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, um, has a relative named Boaz. And the text tells us that Boaz is a worthy man. The text also implies that Boaz is a man of means. And throughout the story of Ruth, Boaz is kind to Ruth. He is kind to Ruth. He provides for Ruth. He provides for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And a couple of weeks ago in our text, we saw Ruth propose marriage to Boaz. And last week, they make it official. And so I'll review a few more things as we go along this morning. Um, but last week, we saw Boaz purchase Naomi's field. And by doing so, he is also purchasing the right to marry Ruth, thus making Boaz the redeemer that they needed for their familial line to continue. And we're going to pick this story up right here. Verse 13, chapter 4, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. The, the text begins by saying that Boaz took Ruth. What this means is Boaz took Ruth home because she is now his wife. If he is taking her to his home, the narrator then does not need to include that she is also his wife. But the first readers of the story would realize that by Boaz taking Ruth to his home... She is now his wife. So why the redundancy? The redundancy is in place to show us that Ruth is not the same Ruth as she was at the beginning of the story. She is no longer Ruth the Moabite. Throughout the walk through Ruth, we have seen Ruth's status constantly getting changed. <clears throat> she goes from Ruth the Moabite to Ruth who is less than a servant 
to Ruth the servant, to a wife, and to a person grafted into the people of God by her faith in the God of Israel. The text also tells us that they consummated their marriage, good for them. But more importantly than that, the text tells us that it was the Lord who opened her womb and the couple bore a son. The book of Ruth, there's this tension that has always been just kind of hanging in the air that Naomi and Ruth are poor and in need of food. And Ruth needs a husband to carry on the lineage of her deceased husband. This is what's known as a kinsman redeemer. This man, uh, this was a man who was legally able to redeem his close male relative's wife in order to bring up sons for the deceased lineage. And also he would buy any property to perpetuate an inheritance for the deceased. And in our story of Ruth, there are two possible kinsman redeemers in this story. Boaz and this unnamed fella. Boaz is able to redeem when the unnamed fella wouldn't do it because it would cost him way more than he's, he's willing to give up. So Boaz then has redeemed them. Boaz redeemed the property, and he is now Ruth's husband. So the Lord has been at work addressing the need for food for them through Boaz. And here, yet again, the Lord meets the need of a provision for a son. The story of Ruth is bookended in chapter 1 and chapter 4 by these two themes. And these two bookends are the only times in the entire book of Ruth that the Lord is mentioned here as being involved in the narrative. In verse 1-6, we see that it was the Lord who stopped the famine in the land of Bethlehem, thus ushering Ruth and Naomi's return. And then in this verse, verse 13, we see that it's the Lord who opens Ruth's womb for her to conceive a son. And in both cases, Tony Marita says, the message is clear. God has not forgotten his servants. He is the one who provides for their needs. He's the one who knows. He's the one who sees. He's the one who cares. And he's the one who provides for the needs of his children. So Ruth and Boaz have a baby. And this baby isn't just significant for our story. This baby is significant for the story of the whole Bible. And this baby is significant for the story of all of salvation history. So all the way back in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15, we see God making a covenant with Abraham that God, would prom God promised Abraham that Abraham would be the father of a great nation. And through him and his descendants, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. He promises them that his descendants will number more stars than you can count, more sand on the seashore. But there's a catch here. Abraham is old, and his wife is old, and they have had no children. His wife is 90, and so way past childbearing years. And God kept his promise to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah became pregnant and gave birth to Isaac. Isaac then marries Rebekah. Rebekah is also barren, and the Lord opened her womb to provide for them Jacob and Esau, 
Jacob then would marry Rachel and Leah, and Leah was also barren. But again, the Lord opened her womb, and Judah was born. And we also see outside this familial line a woman named Hannah who was also barren, and the Lord opened her womb to give birth to the prophet Samuel, who would pronounce David as the future king of Israel. So by the time we get to the book of Ruth, the text doesn't tell us that Ruth is barren, but she has been married 10 years and has no children. And this is not a culture where people would wait to have kids. Um, So we can imply that that Ruth is probably barren. And again, the text tells us the Lord opened her womb. So with that knowledge that the Lord is at work here, readers of this text should have their ears perked up that this child being born to Ruth and Boaz is special. We all think our kids are special, but this kid is special. There is about to be something significant that takes place with this child. The narrator highlights for us that Ruth is no longer an outsider, but is now a part of the significant mothers of Israel's history. Verse 14. The women, that means the women in the town, said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. We're seeing Naomi's journey She's going from bitter Naomi to full. She's going from bitter to happy. She's going from empty to full. Naomi returned from Moab to Bethlehem and said to these same women, Don't call me Naomi, because that means sweet or pleasant, but call me Mara. That means bitter. And she's attributing all of this to the hand of the Lord. The Lord has made me bitter. But something significant is taking place here in this prayer. The women are are praising God first. Praise the Lord. Prior to congratulating this family on the birth of this son, they're praising God. Naomi's reversal then is being attributed to the Lord's hand that has in fact not gone out against her. There's something really cool taking place here. All the way back in chapter 1, it's first to these same women that Naomi tells them how God has dealt so bitterly with her and how she's returned empty. She says, look at what God has done to me. And here the women are saying, look at what God has done for you. God sees you. God's taking care of you. And that's the beauty of like true, good, biblical community and why we push it so hard here. Community, when done correctly, people in our lives help us see things that when our ability to see is being clouded. Church, we're called to remind one another of the truth of Scripture. And that's especially pertinent and poignant when our desires for the Lord are lacking. We see that this child is called a redeemer. This isn't attributed to Boaz any longer, but it's being attributed to this child. This child will be a blessing to Naomi. Marita says what they're essentially saying is that this child will save the day. 
Through this child, the family line is no longer in jeopardy, but will continue. And they pray blessings on this child, and these prayers are prophetic. This is interesting to me because if you consider all the nice sentiments and pithy Christian statements that are said when a child was born, like if we're honest, we really have no way of knowing what this child's life is going to be like or how they'll be as adults. Like sometimes kids just don't live up to our expectations um, or the expectations that culture has on them or the expectations that like the church places on them. But this child hours old, is being doted upon. Like he really is going to be something special. This takes place in two ways. First, we see that this child is promised to be a blessing to Naomi because he will be a restorer of life for her and a nourisher for her in her old age. Ruth has essentially given this child to Naomi And their relationship will be more than a typical grandparent-grandchild relationship. This child is being prophesied to care for Naomi unto her death, thus making him a redeemer. This child will be her deliverer. Man, the two basic problems in the book of Ruth are this. They need food and they need a child. And both of these are being fulfilled by this child. He is serving them more than just like in a legal function. Like he's more than just an heir. He is going to provide for them by continuing the line. Which leads us to the second way that this child is special. Secondly, because of this child, the family line will not be cut off. Through this child, through the continuing of the line, the greatest king in all of Israel will be born. And also we see the women of this town recognizing Ruth, officially recognizing her worth, her value, her dignity as a person. They say Ruth is greater than seven sons. Seven in the Bible is a number of completeness and perfection. And also sons were highly valued by this culture. And Ruth is better than seven of them. Because we've seen Ruth being faithful and loyal even when Naomi wasn't. Ruth is a picture of Jesus. Jesus who is faithful even when we are faithless. Naomi's journey from empty to full is culminated in the next verse, verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Man, she had an empty tummy and an empty house, and now she has her heart and her arms full, laying on her the child of a promise. She is serving as his nanny, essentially, and this is going to be a very special relationship for her. Uh, Old Testament scholar Daniel Block says this, Within this family context, these are not legal actions. Naomi doesn't adopt Obed, but these actions are loving. The loving natural actions of her grandmother, gratefully accepting her new status and tenderly receiving the baby. Within the context of the book, however, the action is much more significant. The image of this woman taking the child in her arms must also be seen against the backdrop of her previous experience. She had not only had her breadbasket emptied by famine, 
But in the deaths of her husband and sons, her bosom had also been emptied of her men. God has not forgotten Naomi, and this child is proof. Verse 17, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. They named him Obed. And the mention of David here means that Obed is not the end of the story. There is another story being introduced here. Ruth is more than a story about two widows in a famine. It is more of, it's more than a story about Ruth and Boaz falling in love with one another. It's a story about a God who keeps his promises. It's a story about a God who keeps his promises to his people. Not only was Naomi's family line on the brink of extinction, we see a nation on the verge of annihilation. This nation was so corrupt and immoral and they had no leader and this threatened their very existence. Judges 21-25 said, In those days, in the time of Ruth, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But God. God saw fit to not leave his people the way they were. The book ends with a genealogy. Um, it's tempting just to fly past this, but let's, let's look at it together. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Again, the earliest readers of this would notice something. There are ten names mentioned here. Ten names in a genealogy means this is a royal line. This genealogy would communicate, hey, there's another one coming. A king from this line. And this king, David, would be the greatest physical king of Israel's history. And yet... God promised that David would have a son that sits on his throne forever. David would have a son that would reign and rule for all eternity. Again, the story doesn't end with David. We have another genealogy to consider. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Matthew 1. Matthew 1.1 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So I'm not going to read this whole thing to you, partly because I would embarrass myself trying to pronounce some of those Hebrew names. But there are a few things I do want to highlight in order for us to grasp the full significance of the book of Ruth and this child Obed. Obed means servant. Obed would not just serve Naomi but he would serve the world. And this genealogy is evidence. Up to this point, we've seen God provide food to a nation. We've seen God provide Ruth for Naomi. We've seen God orchestrate redemption through Boaz for Ruth and Naomi. We have seen God provide a child for the family line to continue. Now we are going to see God provide a Messiah. 
God will provide a savior. God will provide our ultimate redemption through this familial line. Look, man, our sin requires a payment. Our sin means there is a penalty going out against us. And that penalty is death. Sin is treasonous rebellion against God. And because of our disobedience and rebellion against God, God's wrath was against us. God would be just to send us to hell for all eternity, separated from him. And yet, because of his great love for his creation, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, God the Son, to die for us as the perfect sinless sacrifice against sin. In order that by faith in Christ, we too can have redemption. We see Abraham at the beginning Leading to, leading to David. David is Israel's most celebrated king. He was a military hero. He built the temple. He provided relative peace. But he was not the promised one. David and Abraham both had moral and ethical failures. And because of their sin, they needed the redemption of a Savior just like us. Through this line, God keeps his promise to David that Jesus Christ, the better David, the better Abraham, was coming into the world. This Emmanuel, God with us, has entered into human history. And Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Man, it's really easy to approach genealogies with names that have 15 consonants in a row. Um, and, and just like fly past them. But don't do that <laughs> because there's something significant that's taking place inside of them. These genealogies are reminding us of a great God. A great God who is sovereign over all of creation, who is powerful and all-knowing. God's promises will not fail. So we have these genealogies in place to remind us of God's good purposes. In this particular genealogy, if we were to go back and reread the stories of these people in the Old Testament, uh, this looks more like an episode of the Jerry Springer show, if you remember that uh, train wreck. Um, this looks more like trash TV than the family reunion of what would be the king of the universe. But here, the, here it is. There are five women mentioned in this genealogy, which is unique in Jewish literature and in a patriarchal society. But let's briefly consider these five women. Um, let's see, verse, verse 3 of chapter 1, it says, Judah, fathered, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar seduces her father-in-law into a sexual relationship by disguising herself as a prostitute. Verse 5, Solomon, father, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab, a prostitute from Jericho, a nation that is enemies of the Lord. She is the mother of Boaz. Also in verse 5, uh, Obed, Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Ruth, a widowed woman from a cursed people. Verse 6, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba, the, the wife of Uriah. She had a child with David who was not her husband. 
She was brought into the family line through adultery and murder. When we get down to verse 16, we see Mary, a virgin with no husband, who through the immaculate inception um, would become the mother of Jesus. This genealogy highlights the type of people that God is pleased to save and who God is pleased to use. And none of these people are obvious choices. Worldly, conventional wisdom would probably look at this and say, yeah, probably not these folks. But God is gracious. God is so gracious. And God is glorified in our weaknesses. Judah and David, mighty men as they were, had significant moral failures, and their extramarital unions only served to highlight the depravity and only served to highlight for us the depths of their sin. Ruth and Rahab's mention in this, in this genealogy shows us that God saves and God uses people who are natural-born outsiders, just like us. And all of these people play significant roles in God's purposes to provide salvation in and through himself. This genealogy includes men and women, Jews and Gentiles, all broken sinners who are not outside of God's saving reach. Through this line, we get the person of Jesus who through unlikely circumstances comes into a world born of a virgin, born in a manger, born to save sinners. Because sin was in the world, we needed a solution. And this solution is found outside of us. Sin destroys, and without God's great rescue mission, we are doomed. And yet, Jesus Christ... God himself, God in flesh, motivated by love, left the perfection of heaven and came into the world and lived a perfect sinless life. A life that we were required to live but couldn't and wouldn't. Our sin nature has corrupted everything inside of us. And so Jesus, who was tempted in every way that we are and yet overcame temptation and sin, lived the life that we were supposed to live. He lived a perfect life. Jesus never sinned, and therefore, by virtue of his life and by virtue of his holiness, he was able to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. And sin is more than just breaking rules. When we sin, we rebel against a holy and righteous and just God. And Jesus is the solution. Jesus was always plan A. Our sin required a payment. Because of our sin, we needed to be redeemed. Because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus, can we now be redeemed. Jesus' perfection is the only payment that God will accept. Jesus is the pure and spotless sacrificial lamb of God. God sent his son to die in our place. And by dying and raising to new life, the curse of sin has no hold on us. If you are in Christ, you have been freed to love and worship and honor Christ. Through Christ, not only has God not forgotten us, but through Christ, we get God. God is pleased with us. And through Christ, by his indwelling Holy Spirit, giving to believers as the seal of this promise, God is with us. Jesus is our Emmanuel.
God has fulfilled his promise to create a way for us to be restored back to him by faith in his great work to us on the cross. And one day, Christ will usher in a new heaven and a new earth and will again dwell with us for all eternity. Those whose faith is in Christ, those who have confessed their neediness for Jesus, their neediness of Jesus' forgiveness, those who live in and by repentance, they will experience life apart from sin and apart from struggle and will get to live in his presence. And also we have the promises of God to us now. Jesus Christ has ascended and he is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning now. Christian, God has not forgotten you. You are his and he sees you and he loves you. So because of this fact, we should not be bitter in our circumstances because God is with us and is using our struggle and using our suffering to perfect us in faith. And through perseverance, we are called to bring him glory. And listen, he's enough. He is enough to sustain us. He's enough to sustain us in our struggles and in our sufferings and in our trials. He is more than enough. And because he's enough, we should not compromise in our obedience to him, especially for temporal earthly pleasures. Because by Christ's work on our behalf, he has called us to holiness. He has called us to purity. He has called us to look like him. And the question is, do you believe that? Man, do you believe that? If you say that you're a believer in Jesus, is Jesus enough for you? Are you willing to lay down your wants and desires and follow him in obedience? Man, as we're approaching our our Christmas season and the season that we celebrate Advent, the Advent meaning that Christ has come, we need to keep in mind that we're living between the two Advents of Jesus, his birth and his returning. And since we are living with the knowledge and the conviction of Christ's birth, we should seek to honor him with our lives by being wholly dependent on Jesus for life and for faith and for obedience. If you are a Christian, is your life marked by this type of dependency? Is your life a picture of steadfast faith and steadfast confidence in Christ's work to you? Or are you just living for yourself? Are you compromising for your own desires? Is your life marked by holiness? Man, if you're not a Christian, this peace of Christ is available to you. All Christ asks you to do is turn from your sin. Come just as you are. Ask the Lord to forgive you simply by virtue of his love to you. There is nothing you can do to earn his salvation and his love. Christ loves you because Christ is love. Christ loves you not because we deserve it, but because he is love. There is nothing in us that merits Christ's love to us. He simply gives it because he desires us. 
So may that knowledge lead you to turn from your sin. Every single one of you. Every single one of us. And place your faith in Christ. Let's pray.